This morning on this Communion Sunday, our scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Mark in Mark chapter 14. If you have your Bible, would you turn to Mark 14 as we focus this morning on the upper room? And we are reading verses 12 through the end of that section at verse 26. The feast of the Passover is about to take place. Jesus and his disciples are making arrangements for the Passover. And Mark records all that took place in that very moving event of the upper room. So we begin Mark 14, verse 12. On the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. And so they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. And while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth. One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened. And one by one they said to him, surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who tip, dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. It is something of a shock when yesterday I discovered that it is only eight weeks to Thanksgiving. And over the next eight weeks, we will have the same conversation with multiple people in different places on several occasions. And the question will be, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? And depending on your answer, people will say, are you going to friends? Will family be there? How many are coming to your home? And as that conversation develops, you know, of course, we are looking forward with a sense of anticipation and excitement of Thanksgiving, seeing friends and family we haven't seen for some time. And of course, the closer you get to Thanksgiving, we will then be thinking now, what kind of meal did I serve last year? What do I need to serve this year? And mentally, you'll be working through 
all that's involved in a Thanksgiving meal. And then you'll be thinking, where do I sit, Uncle Albert? Where do I sit, Aunt Susan? And can they sit together? Or would that be a disaster for both of them? And all these things are mentally running through your mind. If you lived in first century Jerusalem, people would have similar questions. Except the word thanksgiving would be changed for Passover. And those with a Jewish background and talking to each other would be saying, what are you doing for Passover? Are you having a meal? Are family and friends coming over? And if you are the host, you are then thinking, what will we have to eat? Who will sit beside whom? And very similar conversations would have been held way back in the first century. In the midst of all of the joy, there is also the preparation, as we've mentioned. And as we come to Mark chapter 14, Mark tells us, in verse 12, on the first day of the, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover and they were having similar questions as everyone else. The Feast of Unleavened Bread lasted about seven days. The Passover was one event during that seven-day period. But the context of the Passover is crucial if we are to grasp the significance of what takes place in the upper room. Now, you are educated enough in biblical studies to know that the Passover is when folks, again, with a Jewish background and heritage, look back to Egypt, when they were held in bondage and slavery. And God, in all of his love and grace, sent Moses to bring about their emancipation from bondage and slavery. And they are reminded not only of the freedom and the faithfulness of God, but they're reminded of those 40 years wandering in the desert, making their way to the promised land. And so the Passover is a gathering to remind them of the significance of all that took place. And so that's the cultural context. And here is Jesus saying to his disciples, we need to make preparations. And why was that important? Because in Jerusalem in the first century, they probably had a population, Roman historian Tacitus tells us, around 600,000 people lived in Jerusalem. It's a wider area. And at Passover, that would accelerate to about two to two and a half million people. And as you can imagine, when significant numbers of pilgrims come to town, hotels are booked, bed and breakfasts are booked well in advance. And here is Jesus saying to his disciples, let's get prepared. Let's do the practical instructions of where and when and how. But if you had been reading Mark's gospel for the first time, and you started way back in chapter 1, and you have been reading a chapter each day, by the time you get to chapter 14, you will have a sense that, although the practical descriptions of the preparation are, of course, important, but there is something else taking place here. There is something else beginning to unfold Earlier in Mark's gospel, and in fact throughout Mark's gospel, 
There is what New Testament scholars call a journey motif. And every now and again, you'll hear of Jesus journeying to the far side of the desert, journeying across the Sea of Galilee, going further north. There are moments when those themes of journey and movement and purpose and direction are very much the focal point of Mark's gospel. And as you come to Mark chapter 10, verse 32, and let me read it for you, we find that journey motif coming to a climax. They were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And he says to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. And if you have been reading Mark's gospel, just a chapter a day, as I suggested earlier, there in chapter 10, you begin to understand that the ending of the gospel may not be what you expected. And here, as Jesus begins to say to the disciples, go into the city, there you will find a man, seek his help, make the preparations. But there's that wider contextual backdrop that something else is taking place, something so profound, so deep, that you cannot afford to miss it. And we know what the disciples didn't know that night. We know that since before the foundation of the world, God has providentially and sovereignly bringing to pass his purpose and his will. And all of the necessary pieces are now almost in place in order that God will give for us the perfect sacrifice and his eternal purposes are coming to pass. Jesus, of course, was very much aware of it. The disciples were feeling and sensing something. And please also note this. The language that Mark uses tells us they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. He's leading the way. He's setting the direction. He's determining the pace. He knows what's coming and he is fulfilling his Father's eternal purposes and plans as we mentioned. And Jesus is not hanging back. He's not reluctant. But in absolute intimacy and one with his Father, he is moving forward towards Jerusalem. And I suspect the disciples are beginning to feel a sense of that. And there's a mounting sense that God is at work bringing to humanity his redemption. And as the passage develops, what else do we see? Well, we have that poignant moment when Jesus, in verse 17, 
We read, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. And while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. He responded, It is one of the twelve, one who dips his bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Now, if you have ever been in a situation where you have been badly let down and betrayed by someone, the hurt and the pain, the trauma of that can be overwhelming. And the strange thing is this, only those who are trusted can betray Now, let me say that again. Only those who are trusted can betray. And here was Judas, who had listened to Jesus teaching the gospel. He'd watched lives impacted and transformed. He'd watched Jesus bring Lazarus back from the dead. He'd watched Jesus cure the blind and the the lame and the deaf and the dumb. He'd watched him walk on the Sea of Galilee. He had followed with the others. And now he's about to betray him for 12 pieces of silver, or 30 pieces of silver, rather. And we begin to ask, how is that even remotely possible? How could he possibly do this after all that he has participated in, all he's seen and heard? What is going on here? And yet, on this communion Sunday, as we gather round this table and remember all that he had given for us, not only do we remember, but we examine our own heart and mind. And we also discover that as Judas betrayed his Lord, we see the power and the enticement of sin. We see its deceptive quality. We see its tranquilizing effect, the darkness of it when it captures a heart and rules that heart and mind and soul. And we see it in Judas. And yet we would also want to say this morning, mea culpa, for we have sinned. We've known the allure and the attractiveness of sin. We know its power and all of its enticing attraction, all of its justification and rationale. It's no big deal. Everyone is sinning. It used to be serious. Not today, not in the 21st century. We don't bother with that stuff anymore. And we marginalize and minimize his love. We are struck with spiritual amnesia. And we forget all that he means to us. All that he has accomplished for us. And that's why when we gather around this table. We remember 
his love. And we remember his grace. And to remembrance we add thanksgiving, grateful, profound hearts, knowing our own sin and our own faults, but also remembering his forgiveness, also remembering his love. And all of that takes place when we take bread and the cup. We are powerfully reminded of all that he accomplished for us. Over the summer, and we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, July the 20th, 1969, Apollo 11 landed on the surface of the moon. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin were the astronauts. When they landed on the moon, NASA control told them not to immediately prepare to walk on the surface. Told them to sit quiet, to mentally prepare themselves for what was to come, make last-minute checks of their suits and instruments, making sure they had everything in place. Buzz Aldrin goes on to say that it was one of the most frustrating times of his career because he was aware that over the last 10 years, three or 400,000 man-hours had been put into this project. But he was also aware that he had some minutes before stepping down the ladder onto the surface of the moon. And he was involved in an unprecedented act. He had asked his home congregation where he was a Presbyterian elder if they would give him some bread and some wine in order that he would celebrate the sacrament of communion on the surface of the moon. And that's exactly what took place. Neil Armstrong looked on in connection with NASA control, he asked if he could have a few minutes silence. Very prayerfully, took the bread, ate it, took the juice and drank it, remembering all that God had achieved. And he said, I could not think of a better way to give thanks to God for this moon landing now today, we remember. Today, we give thanks for his forgiveness, for his transformation, his eternal love. And we remember the truths of the gospel, that he was the bread of life, yet was racked with hunger for 40 days. He was the water of life, yet begged a Samaritan woman for a drink. He was the door into heaven, but there was no room for him at the inn. He put the stars into space, yet needed an oil lamp to light his room. He was adored by angels, called a demon by men. He was the ruler of the universe, and yet paid taxes to a Roman governor. He formulated the laws of motion, yet chose to ride on a donkey. He was the good shepherd 
who laid down his life for his sheep. He was the redeemer of the world, sold for 30 pieces of silver. The light of the world would endure and suffer the appalling darkness of the cross. And in him was life. And he became obedient unto death for us. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this powerful reminder in the gospel of all that Jesus accomplished for us. Thank you for your eternal love and grace that allows us to be here this morning to celebrate again with thanksgiving and gratitude all that you have done for us. Father, enable us, please, to be fully focused on you. In Jesus' name we pray.